to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. Last week, um, we got to have a little bit of a break. We had planned a few weeks back, actually, to have Aaron preach last week on that topic since it kind of did dual duty of him preparing for the workshop, the preaching workshop we were in last week, and then also making sure that we don't have to spend twice the amount of time preparing messages. So um, we are glad to be back in Ephesians Chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Let's read God's word together. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. I'll pause for a moment. If you could get the back doors while we read God's word, that'd be great. Go ahead and shut those. Thank you. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord." whether he is slave or free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy, breathed out word. Thank you, God, that you have given us your inspired Word for our good. God, thank you that your word is living and active and powerful and that it cuts sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it pierces us, Lord, the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Lord, I pray that your word would be effective this morning in our lives, that we would not only hear your word, we would receive it and we would, would respond to you as you speak to us through your word. God, I pray that you would bless me as I speak this morning and you would bless all those who hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are a Christian, and actually even if you're not, there's no such thing as a distinction between secular and sacred life. There's no such thing as a part of life that is reserved for sacred things and a part of life that is reserved for things that are secular. There's not a difference between those things. The only difference would be in, in who we are living for in life and how we're living life. You see, if you've placed your, for, your, your hope in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you're hoping in him for your life and for your future, then all of your life is lived in relationship with Christ as members of his radical new humanity. Did you catch that? If, if you are a Christian, all of your life is lived in the relationship with Jesus. Whether or not you are aware of that relationship, all of your life is constantly lived in relationship with Jesus. You're intrinsically forever bound together as one, as one with Christ. And so that is to be seen and should be seen in how we live and, and how we treat each other. 
The hope of every Christian is that we've died to our old nature in the death of Christ and that in his life we've been raised up and made new and joined together with him and that we've been adopted in his family. That's our hope as Christians. Whether we're aware of our hope or not. And as Christians, everything that we do, every role, every relationship, all of Ephesians is about that. It's about what does it look like now to live out this new humanity? Now that we are made one with him, we are adopted with, in, in Christ Jesus. We are one with him. We've been made new. We've been made alive. What does it look like to live out the Christian life? First three chapters of Ephesians were really about who we are in him. And from chapter 4 on, it's talking about the implications of that life in him. But we're never to forget who we are one with. As we approach any and all commandments, we don't do that out of drudgery. We say, you know what? Because I've been made one with Christ, I can have hope to be different. Not because I have the power or ability in me, but because Christ is in me, the hope of glory. This morning during worship, I think God was wanting to draw our attention really to the exalted Christ. Far too often in our lives, we forget who we are in him. We forget that we have a risen Savior. We forget that we have an exalted King. We forget that we are one with Him and He will always be faithful. He will never forsake us. He will never let us go. We forget that we have a hope that lasts forever that will never die. And we must not forget that if we hope to obey Him and respond to Him and live for Him. But if we grasp that we're now part of the Christ and his body in a relationship that's closer than any other, if we understand that we have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in us and, and filling us and enabling us, it's going to change the way that you live and what you live for. You know, today, maybe you were more aware of what you do not have. Maybe you're more aware of, of the lack or troubles or difficulties or challenges in your life and you are less aware of his enabling power, Christ in you, the fact that you are joined together with him and because of that, we can have hope to approach any and all the commandments in scripture including the ones we just heard in Ephesians. All through Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has shown us what it means to be in Christ. What it means to be part of his radical new humanity. If you remember way back in the first chapter of Ephesians, we learned what it means to not only be in him, but the fact that he chose us in him since before the foundation of the earth. That's meant to give us hope. You ever lose perspective? You ever begin to be hopeless when you think of all the things that you're called to do and you think, I'm unable to do that? We need, we need to reflect back on the fact that he's chosen us in him. And he's, he's not going to let his purposes fail. And then in Ephesians 1, 7, it says that in him we have redemption through his blood. He's redeemed us. We no longer belong to our sins and our failings and our weaknesses. It says he's redeemed us through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. And then in Ephesians 5, 1, and it says, in love he predestined us for what? Adoption. We sang about that this morning in one of the songs, how wonderful the Father's love. Do you get how wonderful the Father's love is? That he predestined us 
to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, it says, to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So our very identity is now wrapped up in who Jesus is and who he calls us to be. But when we live our lives, sometimes we become separated from that reality. We forget that that identity is, affects everything we do. Paul talked about in Ephesians 5, the end of Ephesians 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, he talked about how that identity looks. If we realize our union with Christ, it's going to be seen in submitting to one another, not out of duty, but out of reverence to Christ because of who we are in him, because we're adopted. And then he talks about those relationships, those submitting to one another, what that looks like played out in these earthly relationships that we have, where we live. See, Scripture's not ethereal. It applies to where we live and breathe every day. And so, Paul talked to us about husbands and wives and the mutual submission there. He talked to us about the relationships between parents and children. And then now, today, we're being addressed about the relationship between those really in authority or slave, uh, masters and slaves. For us today, there's, there's not masters and slaves here in this room. And if there are, I want to talk to you afterwards so we can put an end to that. But I think there are principles here that, that apply to us today just as much as they applied in Paul's day. Because what it's really speaking to is the issue of how do you live in those relationships that you have where you are under authority to those who are your, effectively your masters? And then how do you live in those relationships where you are over people? How does the good news of Jesus Christ and your new identity in him, how does it apply, how does it affect those very real relationships? And most people in this room I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. Who, who, who is in some way under authority to somebody else? Put your hands up. Excellent. Who is in some way in authority over somebody else? Put your hands up. Excellent. A good portion of the room. So this message is, is not just applicable in that day. It's applicable to each and every one of us. And if you're not yet in a place where you're submitted in, under the authority of somebody else, you one day will be. And even if you are in a place of authority today, one day you will no longer be. And so Paul is taking the good news of who we are in Jesus Christ and our identity and he's saying, this is what it looks. This is what it looks like to be lived out in the Christian walk. So the main idea that we're going to see from this passage is it's, it's that Christians are called Christians are called to mutual submission. So again, end of chapter 5, he was applying the principle of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so now we see this principle of mutual submission. And so Christians are called to mutual submission in their labors. Christians are called to mutual submission in their labors, knowing that God will reward and judge. Christians are called to mutual submission in their labors. Think about that for a moment. That's a radical idea. It wasn't just a radical idea in the first century in slaves and masters. It's a radical idea today. If you are working for someone else, to think of your employer as someone who I need to submit to out of a love for Christ, that will change how you work. If you are an employer and you are thinking of yourself, I need to submit to Christ in the way that I render service to my employees, it will radically change the way that we work. The United States military has had a, a long policy that, that forbids fraternization 
between its ranks, between the enlisted members and the officers. And, and the thinking there is that they want to forbid fraternization between enlisted and officers so that the officers will be more free to make decisions that affect and impact their men without being swayed by personal affections. It's also to help support the hierarchy that's, that's critical to the way that the, the U.S. military does its business critical to the giving and receiving of orders to ensure that there's a clear operational structure. And so there's, there's likely some truth for the, for the U.S. military, at least, in the way that they've done their job for hundreds of years, that if they did allow that close fraternization between officers and enlisted, that it, it likely would break down the authority of the way that they're structured. It would likely change dramatically the way the military functioned. In our passage in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing about slaves and masters, it's a far more radical concept than the idea of just fraternization between officers and enlisted. He's talking to people who have enlisted themselves as slaves, bondservants is what the ESV says. The, the word really is slave. We have it translated as bondservants because um, in, in the 21st century, we are very uncomfortable with the terminology for slavery and because we often associate that with the hideous, horrific period of American slavery. But he's talking to people who have been enslaved, who have enlisted as slaves, who are bondservants in that sense. And talking to people who, who belong to somebody else. He's talking to people who have ownership of other people. And so when he's encouraging them to live out their new identity in Christ in these relationships, it's a radical thing. And so much more than how it would shatter the military's hierarchy, it would dramatically change this hierarchy, this social structure. And it was meant to. Some people wonder, why does the Bible not openly go against these social structures of, of slavery. Well, we need to, first of all, remember this is not slavery like it was back then. It's not slavery like we have in the New Testament. It was socially accepted. About a third of the entire Roman Empire was slaves. Most of the economy was based on that. There was no slavery problem because it was seen as an accepted norm. And in fact, actually, in all of history, really until the last hundred years or so, it was seen this bondservant way of looking at things, not our modern way of looking at slavery, but this, this older way of if you were in debt to somebody else, you couldn't pay your bills. Instead of going to prison, you would sell yourself as an indentured servant, a bondservant, a slave to that person for a number of years. But the Bible didn't start with trying to change the social structures, and it was for a very important reason, because changing social structures doesn't bring about real change. Changing external structures and systems doesn't really bring fundamental change where it's really needed. And where is fundamental change really needed? It's needed in our hearts. You see, God was addressing the heart of mankind. And by doing so, it did and has abolished slavery. Because if people are relating to each other in the way that the good news of Jesus Christ commands us to, the implications of our identity in Christ, if they're relating to each other in this way, there's not even a hint, not even room for relating to somebody as if you owned them or selling yourself into slavery. 
And so now, through God working on people's hearts, he's, he's demolished the acceptance of slavery. See, these verses, they were spoken originally to people living in, in the first century in the area around Ephesus. But we believe that God doesn't just speak once and then silent. You see, God's word is active, and so he's speaking to all of us today in our relationships, in our relationships with employers and employee, employees, in, in our relationships where we're under authority or where we're in authority. In verse 5, it says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And the first thing, the first point that we're going to see from these words into the Ephesians is that Christians are called to submit. Christians are called to submit to authority in our labor as unto the Lord. Why are we called to submit to authority? It's because we're called to do everything as unto the Lord. We're called to submit to authority in our labor as unto the Lord. And sometimes we can kind of parcel it out. We can act like our work is separate from our church life. Have you ever gotten that mindset where you're like, well, I'm going to go to work. Now I'm done with that. Now I can go about being a Christian. Or now I can go about actually living for Jesus. But the gospel is more radical. That who we are in Christ is radical. It affects us to the very core in every relationship that we have. And so at the end of chapter 5, he talked about mutual submission. Now he's talking about what does it look like to obey your earthly masters? And this, that term for masters that we have in English, it's actually the term that we also have for Lord. It's the term that's it's used in a, now they always capitalize it, but it's, it's a term that's used for the Lord as well in the Greek New, New Testament. And why it's important to know is because Paul's doing a little wordplay here. He's talking about slaves, obey your earthly lords and the implication is because you have a lord who's in sight you're obeying in sight of your true master and he tells us that at the end of verse 9 that knowing that you have a master a lord you both have a lord and master and all of your works to be done in view of him there's not any legal bond servants in our country any longer thankfully the idea of slavery is repulsive and we are, we are both sensitive and rightly embarrassed about the horrific past in this country that we have where we singled out an ethnic group for enslavement. But don't misread this scripture to think that it's somehow endorsing that. You see, the Bible hits us where we live and the very heart of what we do is less concerned with our social structures and whether they have a democratic republic or whether we're socialist or communist or what your structures are or what, how your work gets carried out in the sense of do you have serfs and do you have lords and do you have masters and what does that look like? No, the Bible says this applies to you. This new identity applies to you in every relationship regardless of of what society you're in, regardless of what structure you're in, and it will transform you in whatever culture you're in. Paul wasn't saying he approved of being a bondservant or slave. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7.21, he encouraged Christians, he told them to try to be free 
if there was an opportunity. And what that meant was they could actually buy their freedom. Unlike modern day slavery, they could actually get paid, receive payment for work that they did. And they could buy their freedom. And he's encouraged them in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 to buy your freedom if there's opportunity. And then he told them in, in, in verse 24, and a matter of fact, don't, don't become slaves of men. Don't put yourself in that place. Don't sell yourself into slavery because you're free in Christ. But in whatever, whatever situation Christians find themselves, this is a timeless message that even if enslaved, Paul says, you're truly the Lord's freed man. And if you're free, you're considering yourself as Christ's slave. Slavery in, in this time, bond servants in that day, they didn't just come from one geographic region or ethnicity. And you need to know that as you're, as you're encountering passages like this. There was a professor emeritus, Murray Harris, and I want to share a quote with you from him. And he says, In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage so that they could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service, or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly, were not socially segregated, at least in the cities, they could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their, their natural inferiority was not assumed. But even so, slaves were still considered property of their masters. And he goes on to say that a slave in Roman law defines somebody as someone whose person and service belong wholly to another. Slavery involves absolute ownership and control on the part of the master and total subjection of the slave. In the absence of the slave's freedom to choose his action or movement, the identity of the slave was inseparable from the identity of his master. So even if you had a well-paying job and you were a doctor in that, or a lawyer, or whatever profession you think of, or CEO of a company in that day, as a slave, you would still be aware that ultimately your freedom was not your own. And the Christian church in that day was made up of a lot of slaves. If a third of the population of Rome and the Roman Empire was, was made up of those who were enslaved for various reasons, then at least a third of those in the church, and most likely more than a third in the church, were made up of slaves. Why? Because the gospel is a message of hope to people who know that they need it. And so if you were a slave in that day, you would have been thinking, how in the world do I relate to my master who's now in the same church with me? Okay, how, how do I relate to the guy? He's a new Christian. I've been a Christian for 5, 10, 20 years, and, and I'm supposed to submit to him. What does that look like when I'm the one teaching him the Bible on Sundays, and then during the week I'm his slave? What in the world does that look like? And masters, how do they relate to slaves? It would have created some social tensions there. And so Paul hits right to the heart of that, and he says, those distinctions are nonsense, what matters is how you relate to each other from the heart in light of your new identity. And so when he says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, you might think, well, gee, Paul is somehow encouraging slavery. No, what he's doing is he's addressing slaves directly, something that no one would ever do in that day. He was treating slaves as free moral agents on their own. He was treating them as equal members of God's household because they are. Because no matter what social status or background or race or ethnicity or how much money you have or don't have. You are equal members of God's household if you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus. There is no distinction, neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. We don't draw distinctions based on our race or ethnicity. 
Why? Because God's made us all part of his one new humanity. There's one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism in Christ Jesus. And so he's treating slaves equally as members of God's household and the churches who receive this letter, he's, he's speaking to them alongside their masters as equal members accountable to God for their behavior in the same way. And he was treating them as ethically responsible. And he's applying the gospel, this good news, to relationships and showing that it removes any room for social distinctions in Christ. And he's also saying by writing to them that slaves are not forgotten, but God cares about them as well. Wherever they find themselves, and wherever you find yourself, whatever situation you're in, God cares about you as well. And, and how you relate to others is significant. You shouldn't be waiting to improve your situation before you can honor God. No, in whatever situation you find yourself, you can be honoring to God and bring glory to God. And he was commanding them really four different things, four different ways that they can obey and what that obedience looks like and what that submitting looks like. And one of, those, one of those ways is submitting to authority. It looks like obeying respectfully. And he says, with fear and trembling in verse 5a. What's he talking about? He's talking about the attitude that we obey, the attitude that we submit to those in authority over us. And this applies to everybody in this room who's thinking about your current job or situation, or maybe you're in school and you have to submit to those in authority over you. It looks like obeying respectfully. They were to obey their masters with a fear that their disobedience would bring shame on the name of Jesus Christ and, and dishonor to their true master, the Lord. The same way for us today, we can equally please God no matter where we're at. So what does it mean? It means not talking badly about your boss. It means talking, not talking badly about those over you, not belittling them, not mocking them behind their backs, not slandering them. That's hard to do, isn't it? Because often... We have coworkers and people around us who engage in that kind of talk. But that's not pleasing to Christ and that's not obeying as unto Christ. Submitting to authority looks like obeying respectfully. And it's the kind of obedience that was called for. It's not just this outward external obedience. And we all know how to do that, right? We know how to play that game where you, you go to work and you look good on the outside but you're like, really, I hate my boss. Or you hate those over you. You don't like them. They, they annoy you. They agitate you. And, and so inside, you're really grumbling and complaining. And so Scripture's addressing that as well. It's talking about not just our, our outward respect. It says in, ver, in the second half of 5, it says, with a sincere heart. So submitting to authority looks like obeying sincerely. Obeying sincerely. Let that sink in for a moment. How sincere is your obedience to those in authority over you? That's a hard word. Most of us can at least feign outward obedience to a difficult employer or somebody over us. But changing our hearts so that our obedience is sincere and, and a sincere overflow of a desire to obey Christ, that takes the work of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? And let us, this morning, if you're being convicted that, you know what, I'm not obeying those in authority over me with respect. I'm not obeying those in authority um, sincerely. Let's cry out to God and say, Jesus, we need you. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can, from a sincere heart, want to please you instead of want to work for other reasons. 
You see, because all of life is to be lived as worship to God, and so Paul is really playing that out here in our work relationships. I used to obey just externally when I was a kid. Maybe, maybe you're finding yourself in that trap as well. Maybe you find that you serve or serve in the church or whatever structure or social setting you find yourself in, and you do it just to be seen. Well, it's not just to be respectfully and sincerely. Submitting to authority looks like obeying faithfully. Looks like obeying faithfully. We can see this is not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of God. Not by doing things just to be seen or doing things to please people or to get man's, man's favor, but doing things faithfully as unto Christ. Doing things as servants of God. I remember that I would clean my room when I was a little kid. I would... Every Saturday, I just wanted to be outside. Um, when I was growing up, we didn't have console games, and if we did, I don't, we never had one personally. And, and, and we, our TV only had three channels, and they were black and white, and, and no, it's not because we lived in the dark ages, it's because my parents were cheap, and we didn't have any money growing up. So I loved to play outside. That was a, the good, good benefit of that. And, and all I wanted to do was be outside, but every Saturday, it was my chore time where I had to be locked in my room, and I couldn't go outside and play until I finished cleaning my whole room up. But I, I wouldn't do that respectfully, and I, I really wouldn't do that sincerely, and, and I wouldn't do it faithfully. What I, what I would tend to do is I would, I would take everything and I would stuff it. You ever, you ever do that? You stuff things, you're cleaning out. I'm not talking about like the mad dash rush when you stuff, when you have unexpected guests drop by. That's an okay thing, right? But I'm talking about the stuffing that we do um, normally. When, when, you're, when we're trying to honor God with our work, that's not honoring God. I would stuff everything under my bed or I'd stuff everything in the closet or I'd stuff everything in a bag and hide it in the basement on a shelf. I really would do that. Um, I would put things places so that there was an appearance of cleanliness, an appearance of me being faithful, but I wasn't really being faithful. I was just doing those for eye service so I could get out and do what I wanted to do, and I wasn't seeing that, no, God cared about the way I cleaned my room. God cared about the way I submitted to those in authority over me. Now, um, this might be a sensitive subject for those of you teenagers in the room right now. You're not allowed to nudge your teenager right now. Let them be convicted by God on their own. But God cares about the way that we submit to those in authority over us. Are we doing it faithfully? Maybe this kind of eye service, it, it, it looks like working to get credit for something. You ever done that at work? You're like, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do this just so I can be seen. That's, that's obeying out of eye service, out of trying to please men. Or maybe you're trying to work to appear smart or work to get credit or you're working to look good for your boss or coworkers, and Or maybe you're lying and cheating to get ahead or to make a sale so that you can look better than you really are. But Paul said to slaves in that day who would, would have been in very bad situations perhaps, if he told them to don't obey your masters like that, obey them faithfully, obey them from the heart, not at a man's service, how much more does it apply to those of us who are not enslaved, who are under authority? It's a category that I think most people can relate to because in some way all of us are tempted at some point to be people pleasers. 
Now, it can be seen easier in children who may not be encouraged or noticed much by their parents, and, and so they're overly eager to look to obey their parents so that they'll be noticed and maybe just hear a word of encouragement from their parents. Maybe in the workplace is seen doing things with the motivation to get recognition from those above or please your management whether or not it's the best or the right thing to do. Or maybe it looks like getting your sense of identity or worth from how other people view you. How can you tell if you're that person? Well, are you dramatically disappointed? Are you discouraged and bummed out when you get a word that's discouraging or disapproving for someone? How does that affect your identity? You, you may be serving out of man-pleasing, obeying out of eye service. Paul says slaves are not to obey that way, so how much more are we as those who have been set free in Christ Jesus, are we to obey from the heart, respectfully, we obey faithfully, sincerely, Paul's talking to people who view themselves as belonging to another person. And he says, no, what you need to realize is that you do not belong to another person. You belong to one. Because you've submitted yourself voluntarily as his bondservants. You belong to the Lord, Jesus Christ. And so now everything you do as a believer, as a Christian, is to be done with the awareness that you have a Lord and Master. And it is not this earthly Master, but it will be seen in how you relate to those in authority over you. It'll affect how you work, won't it? In verse 7, Paul says that they are to render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. He's really driving home a point here, isn't he? He's like, Paul, would you let up already? You're being a little hard here, aren't you? Holy moly, we're not just supposed to be faithful and, and do this wholeheartedly and sincerely, and, but we're to do this with like goodwill, good intent as well from the heart? Not to man, but as unto the Lord? It's not just submitting respectfully, sincerely, and faithfully. It looks like obeying eagerly. It's talking about a good desire or a good will. A desire to obey those in authority over you. Now, when you're thinking about those relationships, when you raised your hand earlier, because almost everybody in this room raised their hand, in, they have someone who's an authority over them. So when you think about those relationships that you have, are you desiring to obey eagerly because you want to please Jesus? Because you're more aware of your identity in Christ than any earthly identity. When we do our work, is it done from the heart? for Christ, through Christ, in Christ. Are we doing our work rendering service with a good desire to serve the Lord, or is it, are we doing our work for our own good because we're going to get treated better? Are we, are we rendering service so that we personally benefit or get paid more? Now, seeking to get paid more is a good thing, but if that's the, 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 really the sole motivation, if that's the heart motivation behind why we're working, you're going to be so disappointed. You're going to be so discouraged. You're going to be so let down because you were never meant to work just for that reason. You see, the, the heart of why we're working is as unto the Lord. And so Scripture's addressing that core motivation. You don't, don't work for recognition or only for financial gain. And to work to worship God because He's given you a purpose. 
And he's called you here to glorify and exalt his name in how you do your work. And we're going to temporarily skip over verse 8. We're going to come back to that in a minute. In verse 9, though, it addresses masters. And it says, masters, do the same to them. He says, masters, do the same to them. Masters, do the same to your servants as, as I've just been telling your servants to do to you. And so we're going to see this principle that Christians are called to use authority and labor as unto the Lord. So if you've been given a position of authority, you're called to use that authority as unto the Lord, submitting your authority to God. So whatever authority you have, the way you submit to the Lord is by rendering service to those under you in a way that's aware of, of God, in a way that's caring and kind. This is not about superiority or inferiority. A husband is not superior to a wife. Even though they're in a position of authority, they're equal image bearers of God. They just have different roles to carry out. In the same way, children are not somehow less significant than their parents. They are equal image bearers of God. But for a time, for a temporary period, they're placed in a position under authority. And so... Paul's following a logical progression of thinking. An earthly master, an employer, or another person in a position of authority is not superior even though they've been given a different role. If you're in a place of authority, you need to stop thinking of yourself as being superior. You both have the same master. You both have the same Lord. If you're in a place where you're submitting, you're not submitting because you're inferior. You're submitting out of reverence for Jesus. At some point, every earthly role that you have, that we have, will change. It'll come to an end. What will not come to an end is who are we living for in everything that we're doing? If you think about that, if people began to live that way in this society, in maybe in the first century, if they began to live that way, it would shatter, it would shatter the backbone of of slavery. It'd be groundbreaking to have these commandments come to you if you're living in the first century. Never in the first century Roman culture was a master ever commanded to treat his slaves in the same way that the slaves treated their masters. You would never hear that. That's, that's revolutionary. Before we go and interpret scripture based on our 21st century norms, the rights and limitations of masters were mentioned. The rights of slaves were delineated, but masters were never told how to be good masters. There was a famous Roman, Seneca, and he once said that all slaves are enemies. That's how they viewed slaves. Paul says something shocking. He says, do the same to them. They would have been wigged out as they were reading their Bible, as they were reading this letter to the Ephesians. What? My masters would do the same thing to me? Woo! And the masters would be like, whoa, wait a minute, I'm supposed to treat them the same way? And he says, effectively, masters are to do things not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with a good will as to the Lord and not to the man. And, and then the same reason applies to masters who did slave, knowing that whatever good anybody does, this one he'll receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And so masters were to interact with the slaves as if they too were slaves of Christ. How do you relate to you employee, your employees? Do you lord your, 
authority over them. Maybe it's not an employer-employee relationship, but whoever you're in authority over, are you lording it over them as if you are superior in some way? Or are you aware that you're on equal footing and you have another master over both of you? And that you've just been temporarily given this position of authority to be a steward for the gift that he's given you. But that too is a gift from God. It's not of yourself. So Paul says to them, and stop your threatening. Stop threatening! Why was he saying that? Because that's a very typical way for those in authority to relate to those under authority is to threaten them. Now it doesn't mean them saying, you know, not warning of consequences for, for bad behavior. That's, that's actually discipleship and care. When you say, look, here's the kind of work that will be rewarded. Now here's the kind of work you need to avoid. But that's not threatening. You don't threaten employees. You don't threaten those under you. Motivates those who work for you by threatening. It's not just unwise. It's displeasing to God. And, it, and what it's saying is that if you're, especially if you're a Christian, is that God treats us by threatening, so I'm treating you by threatening. It, it says something wrong about the good news of Jesus Christ, that he's not really transformed you. It, it, it's living with a lack of awareness, the fact that God does not threaten us any longer. He doesn't threaten us. He doesn't Lord, that authority over us. Actually, actually said that Jesus himself humbled himself, becoming a man, taking the form of a, same word, bondservant. So Jesus treated us as if he was a bondservant, enslaving himself voluntarily for our good. So when, when we treat people who are under us, we're over them in authority, we're called to treat them in the same way as Christ did and to be aware that our very identity is to be changed. We're to treat people as if we were put there with authority to serve them for their good. And then Paul says there's no partiality with God. God doesn't treat slaves and masters differently. He doesn't reward one more than the other. God rewards both according to how they live. And God treats both equally is what he's saying. And so Paul doesn't come straight out and say that in that day slavery will be done away with. But let me tell you, if the, those believers in that day responded to this letter, it would do away with slavery for good. And thanks be to God that we no longer are trapped in the lie of slavery. That we can see that no, we... We have been created equally in God's image. And actually, we, we, we did a disservice when we view other people as inferior to us because we fail to see the, the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God that looks different. That's what, when we see somebody who looks different than us, what we're supposed to see is, you know what? I, I, I thank God that he, his beauty is varied. It's multifaceted. It's multicolored beauty. And it's meant to reflect and to glorify him and to show his nature and his character and his diverse way of loving. If you treat your employees this way, it will dramatically change your working environment. But the primary motivator for those in authority and those under authority is not just duty. It's not just obedience alone because that's what you're supposed to do as a Christian. 
But we can often get caught in that trap, can't we? And, and as Christians, we get caught in the trap that we must obey and it's obedience alone. And we fail to see the motivation for that obedience. So we're given the motivation really in two places. In verse 8, look down in your Bibles if you will. It says, knowing that, here's the motivation, knowing that whatever good anybody does, now this is broadly applicable, this is not just slaves and masters, whatever good anybody does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Our motivation is that we'll receive back from the Lord. That's who we're serving, and he's going to reward us and repay us. And what a wonderful truth that is. No matter what happens in this life, we can have confidence that he will reward us on that day. And then the second motivation we see in verse 9 is knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. What's he saying there? He's saying that we both have a master. We all have a master. And that master, he's not here on earth temporarily our master. He is forever our Lord. And why does it say in heaven? And that's to remind us of the fact that he is reigning and he is ruling and he is over everything. And so we serve with the knowledge knowing that we have a master, a Lord, who is over everything, who's in control of everything so we can trust him. And he's not partial. He doesn't treat us based on race or ethnicity or background or how rich or poor or weak or infirmed we are. So the last point we're going to look at really briefly from these verses is that both those under authority and those in authority, we're going to really focus in on verse 8 and 9. We're to be motivated to mutual submission as servants of Christ the Lord who rewards. We're not just living life apart from Jesus. Every aspect of our life is lived before Jesus and we're his servants And it says that he is in heaven and he will reward. We'll receive back from him all the good things that we do. You see, mere duty is not enough to sustain us. If you you ever watch those old movies, those those old cowboy movies, those old train kind of robbery movies, and they have this train and it's chugging along, it's a steam engine, and, and they're shoveling things into this fire. Well, why are they doing that? Because the the steam engine, the steam really turned the the, the pistons, and it made the wheels move, but it, it needed to be fueled by something. Yes, the steam is what made the, the locomotion happen, but it, it had to be fueled by something. It sustained by something. It wouldn't, it wouldn't keep, the water wouldn't keep boiling and steam being produced unless there was a fuel that was, that was feeding the fire. A fuel source, normally something like coal or wood, had to be consumed as Christians, mere willpower alone will not sustain you in your ability to move forward in your walk with Christ and to obey Him. It will eventually run out. Mere willpower alone will not stoke the fires of our passion to live for God that create the energy to work for Him. You see, our will has to be stoked by something. Our passions need to be inflamed and put on, set on fire with the fuel of knowing Christ and seeing Him as more valuable if we're to burn bright and expend energy in living for Him. So often, we get bogged down with mere obedience and we fail to be set aflame with the fact that we have a risen Savior. We have a Lord. We have a Master who is in all, who is over all, who we are united and one with, 
who was greater than anyone and anything, who's over any and all human systems, and we have a master who sees all that we do, and he's going to reward us on that day, that is something to live for. When you do your work, are you, are you aware that you're doing your work as unto Christ and you're doing your work in Christ, to Christ, for Christ, through Christ who enables you? Are you doing your work rendering service with a good desire to serve the Lord, not just because we're going to be treated better? The motivation for slave rendering service and obedience sincerely from the heart is... It's with an awareness of the fact that they were slaves of Christ. They, have, they can have confidence that whatever good they did, they'd receive back from him. What he's saying is don't work for temporal rewards alone. That's not enough to sustain you. You need to work with, a, with the reality that you are storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not decay. You're bummed out about not making a lot of money here on earth. That's not what you're, you're living for ultimately. You're living to please him. Because he's the one who's going to reward you. How you conduct yourself in the workplace and render service it reveals whether you're worshiping God and aware of Christ, who you are at one with. When you're wasting time fooling around the internet when you should be working, or maybe you minimize or close your browser when your boss walk by, walks by. That's really just working for eye service, right? When you do the bare minimum, put enough hours in just to get by. Is it working in a way, seeking to work unto Jesus as his bondservant? Or is it something else? When you do something good and it's not recognized, do you get angry because you aren't being noticed? What's motivating you? Are you working for eternal rewards primarily? Is that reflected in how you work and how you treat your employees too? You can be sure that whatever good anyone does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether he's slave or free. If you're in some position of authority, it's, it's, this is for your benefit as well. Don't, don't treat your employees as, as just people who you can get rich from and benefit from only. Don't, don't treat your employees as people just meant to serve you as a means to an end or a way to increase your bottom line or get a reputation for yourself or maybe to take pride in yourself or how big your company has become or how many people who are under you. But render your service to your employees, not grudgingly, not stingily, but as servants of Christ, looking to the will of God from your heart, trusting that God will repay you, God will provide for you and reward you with rewards greater than any personal monetary gain. And there's something that, as we're ending, I want you to notice something in these verses. I want you to look in each one of those verses. If you have a Bible, look in verse 5. Look in verse 6. Look in verse 7. Look in verse 8. Look in verse 9. Do you notice, do you notice there's someone who is, is a common denominator between all of those verses? In verse 5, it says, Obey sincerely as you would Christ. In verse 6, it says that we're to carry out our duties as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In verse 7, it says to render service with good will as unto the Lord. In verse 8, it says the motivation of the service renders to be rewarded by the Lord. In verse 9, earthly masters to render service to those under them, knowing that they have a master, the same word used for the Lord. Everything that we do in the Christian walk is to be done in light of Jesus. 
Our entire identity is, is found in him and not in ourselves. Everything that we do is to be seen as unto Christ, in Christ. That's why in all these commandments, Paul is not letting us lose sight in each and every verse that everything that we do, all of our life is to live, be lived out before Christ with an awareness that he, the one who is over all in heaven, he will reward us. Knowing we've ultimately been completely forgiven, made a member of his family, we have a risen Lord, he's going to reward us. If you are a Christian, let me ask you this morning, are you excited about the fact that you are one with Christ? If not, let me encourage you to go back and read the first three chapters of Ephesians and see just who it is you've been called to be. And that, that who you're called to be is meant to enable you to, to live out who God's already made you. But he's never going to leave you alone in that. In everything that you do, you're, you're able to do all things, whether good or bad, you know, hard situations. I don't mean you're supposed to do bad things. Whether you're in hard situations or bad situations, you're, enabled, you're, you're, you're gonna be able to do those things because you are at one with Christ. Seeing Jesus is meant to be the fuel, the stokes, the fires of our heart and produces energy to obey and keep on going. What's feeding your fuel? What's feeding your passion? If you've lost sight of, of the excitement of living for him, the, the dramatic, transformative power of Jesus, and let me submit, you may have forgotten that you are in Christ and that he's in heaven and he is going to reward. Paul, he's writing this letter, is a happy prisoner of the Lord. Also, others might know the name of Christ. How are we living? How are we working? Is that seen? Are we excited about Jesus? Or are we living for other things that steal and rob the fuel of our passion? Been bogged down in the, in the grind of life. If you're not seeing Christ as worthy, living for your eternal word, I actually want the band to come up. We're gonna, we're gonna sing a song in closing. But if you've, you've been bogged down, you've been lacking joy if you've been seeing your duties as a Christian or commandments and what you're supposed to do and you're thinking something's missing here it may be it may be because you've lost sight of Christ as, as worthy maybe you've lost an awareness of the fact that you're one with Jesus Maybe you've lost an awareness of the fact that you've been adopted in him. You've been forgiven. You've been set free. No matter what this earthly situation might look like for you. Maybe you've lost sight of the fact that he's made you a part of his family never to be taken away again. Maybe you've lost sight of the fact that he's in heaven overall and he's with you and he'll reward you. Let's sing Stand together and sing, if you will, for a moment.